problems. This show is all about the people behind the science of biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Life, life well, I'm really excited about our next guest. Really pleased to introduce Dr. Barry Tico. Barry is the chief medical officer at Stoke Therapeutics. It's a company that's addressing the underlying cause of severe diseases by upregulating protein expression with RNA-based medicines. And he is in tandem a founder and board member currently at Verve Therapeutics, which aims to protect the world from heart disease. Prior to his current positions, he was the head of development of mRNA treatments for cardiovascular and metabolic diseases at Moderna Therapeutics, as well as head of external R&D innovation for cardiovascular and metabolic diseases at Pfizer. And he was also a VP of clinical development at Biogen before that. He's got a really interesting background. He spent time at the University of Chicago, where he received his MD and PhD, and then completed his pediatrics training at Northwestern here in Chicago. Uh, with a cardiology fellowship at Children's Hospital in Boston. He stuck to the East Coast following his move to Boston, where he worked on the clinical staff at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital and conducted a lot of laboratory research there. So I feel very lucky uh, personally to count Barry as a great friend and collaborator over the past several years, especially in our interactions at the Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the University of Chicago, where Barry and I worked together on the Innovation Fund identifying and working with faculty investing in early stage science companies. So his experience centers around therapeutics across really every gamut of uh, going from you know early identification of a, of a lead into the clinic and on into patients. And so we get the privilege of kind of hearing about that experience through our conversation with Barry. So welcome to the show, Barry. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. Great to be able to have a chance to catch up with you and have a great conversation, which I'm looking forward to. Well, Barry, you've had such a diverse set of experiences, you know, all tied together, it seems to me, to bring new drugs to patients. Can you tell me a little bit more about your journey to present day? Certainly. Well, it, it, it really starts um, with my intention to study medicine, and that came all the way back to the fact that uh, two, two things really were driving my interest in medicine. One was that my father was an ophthalmologist practicing the south side of Chicago for many, many years. And when I was younger, he would sometimes take me on his rounds to see some of the patients who he had operated on. And uh, one of my most distinct memories is walking into the room with an elderly woman who had a patch on one of her eyes and she had had a, a, a severe cataract in one eye and couldn't see. And my father came in and removed the patch and she gasped. All of a sudden she was seeing. And hearing that gasp, which is something that just sticks with me because it was a gasp of, oh my God, my life is gonna change now. This, that, that's something that medicine can do for people. Wow. And it's something that doesn't happen in many other professions. So for me, my goal was to bring gasps out of people like that so that we're <laughs> like really, that. We're really changing <laughs> their <mantra>. lives. 
So that was one driver. And then the other driver was just my fascination with human biology and, and the fact that you and I can sit here and talk to each other and understand each other and talk about the meaning of life. I mean, that, that's something that is, is just fascinating to think about. How does that all happen? And to me, it all started with thinking about how does, how does the human body form? Uh, and, and that directed part of my course was just trying to figure out more and more about how it is that, that cells work, how do, is it that we make the energy that, that can make our bodies function, how is it that the heart forms, how is it that the brain works. All of these things are, are questions that have really allowed me to find interest along the way and really have driven me to to get to the path where I am right now. Well, and, I mean, you've spent a considerable part of your career as a practicing physician working with patients. And what caused you to ultimately engage more directly in the drug development field, beginning to work at larger pharma companies like, uh, well, today Biogen's a larger company. When you started, it was still probably, you know, a little bit earlier in its development. But places like Biogen and Pfizer maybe more well-developed companies than what you're focused on right now. What, what caused you was... Did that experience working directly with patients shape some of your skills and the way you delivered as a drug developer? It was, it was driven by, again, two factors. One was that when I was on staff at Massachusetts General Hospital, I was running a, or had a research lab that was studying heart development in fish. And so I, this, again, gets back to the fascination of how the heart starts with a few cells, just four cells, and then it grows into a tube, and then that tube folds upon itself and then folds in a way that these four chambers of the heart get together and are, are providing blood to the whole body. Fascinating, and, and the fish are transparent, so one can see that whole thing happening as we're going. To me, that was part of the draw, was just being able to, to learn about this whole process. But So I would spend half my day looking at fish hearts. And then the second half of my day, I would go and see patients with heart diseases and try to help both diagnose and understand what was going on and also find treatments. And those are two quite divergent fields. And I was trying to figure out a way, how do I combine that? How do I combine this basic science experience that I have and knowledge and all of the clinical understanding that I have? And I I was trying to do it in the context of the, the academic setting, and to me, it really felt like I was putting a square peg into a round hole. It just wasn't fitting. And so then I said to myself, why am I trying to fit this thing that doesn't feel right together? Why don't I just go try to find that, that round peg? Uh, why don't I find the thing that, that feels comfortable? And so for me, being in the biopharma industry really worked that way because it's a field that allows for me to work with bench scientists and people generating data in the lab and then think about how can that be applied to people and, and running clinical trials that, that test those questions and then eventually being able to provide those medicines to people on a large scale. So I think that was part of the one, one of the lessons that I learned was if something feels as though it's not really working, don't just keep trying the same thing over and over again and hoping that something will change. Be open to making that change happen and, and following a path that feels good, even though there's a risk to it. And, and certainly 
going into biopharma, especially in the days when I did it, when it wasn't such a common path. That took some willingness to take a risk, but it also meant that once I was there, it felt just right. And, and that feeling of, of knowing this is, where I, this is where I belong, this is right for me, is a great feeling. And, and hopefully most people can be able to achieve, achieve that in their careers. That's really cool. So it sounds like that kind of evolved over time, your interest of kind of going from practicing at the bedside and then maybe the the yearning, and I'm putting words in your mouth, but the yearning to kind of impact on a larger scale and your you, kind of your leverage, if you could kind of be part of a process where you're developing a new drug, a new therapy, the ability to impact tens and hundreds and thousands of patients through that. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's exactly the, the idea was that it, it could allow me to have an impact on a, on a much broader level while still doing exactly what I liked doing in terms of trying to translate results coming from laboratories into actually finding treatments to help people. And, you know, you, as you said, you kind of took an unconventional path. Uh, biotech, as we look at it today, is maybe a little more conventional, especially for academicians that increasingly are seeing opportunity for impact by moving down or at least interacting with that startup scene and, and having some role in taking their idea and seeing it you know, move down the commercial path. You were an early entrant into that field and taking that uh, risk into the unknown one of your first companies you got engaged in in the Boston area was Biogen. Can you describe kind of where you came into Biogen and what that was like over the course of your tenure there and kind of how did it evolve? It, I, I just always think it's interesting to watch companies that, you know, start with a core team, a good technology. But as you go from 10 employees to 100 to 1,000 and, you know, drugs on the market and those kinds of things, it's it's a completely different company many times. Maybe the culture stays the same, but the skills needed to, to be operating, you know, at different scales is a fascinating part of kind of watching the, uh, it's, it's almost like your description of the, of the heart, starting with the four cells and un unfolding slowly. And, you know, it, it takes on its own life. Any comments around what it was like to kind of work at Biogen, which was, you know, really an early icon in the biotech space? Well, for me, Biogen was a, a great experience and um, I, developed several mentors there who I continue to work with now. And I think what, what I learned at Biogen was, first of all, Biogen was very much a science-focused and science-driven company and, and truly had made decisions based on data. I think part of it was the fact that it was founded by several Nobel Prize winners and people who really wanted to use understanding of of um, the, the way a cell works to get to figure out how to make medicines for people. And, and that idea continued throughout the company. So throughout my experience there, w when we were making decisions, especially on the clinical development side, it was based on what, what, is the, what are these results telling us? What is the science telling us? What are the, the medical indications here telling in terms of which direction we should go? Uh, the, the other key thing about Biogen is that it is now, but it, it became very much a, a patient-oriented, patient-centric company. And I think that was based on the fact that, it, especially early on, uh, when, it, when the, the first medicine for multiple sclerosis came out of Biogen, Avonex, which was an interferon, th that's when the connection to patients with multiple sclerosis really began. And that fostered in the company that 
direct connection with patients and that desire to understand what is the path of patients, what, what are patients going through, and how can we make our medicines address the concerns and needs of patients. Because sometimes we do get into a, a, a path where we are making medicines for something that we think as, as drug developers and as uh, executives and companies, we think this is what's necessary. But we haven't gone and, and actually talked to patients and families and, and said, what is it that, that's your main concern? And unfortunately, there are times when what we're trying to strive for in, in a medicine is not what the patients or even the physicians are looking for. So that, that, that discussion has to happen and is happening more and more. And, and much of it was driven by, by Biogen. Yeah, very interesting. And that seems to be, you know, a core set of principles you've been able to carry with you, you know, to, to present day. And we'll get into, you know, Stoke and Verve in just a minute, but kind of continuing on your pathway. You then, you know, after several years at Biogen, then kind of went over to Pfizer. Any experiences there that you then took on with you as you continue to kind of move yourself forward on your career? You know, as you think about Pfizer size and scale, you know, what were some of the things that you thought were a benefit to your exposure and experience there that you were able to kind of port with you to, you know, your current endeavors? Again, recognizing to me, it's really interesting to see, again, once a company is really large, the specialization becomes even more incumbent on the people that are part of that large organization for it to work and deliver outcomes, whereas kind of in the early stages, contrast that to the early stage startup, where a lot of times the skills of the people getting it going are a little bit more of a jack of all trades, more generalists. Did you find that to be true at Pfizer? But so many benefits can come from that experience. I just wondered if that's what was part of what you encountered when you were there at, at Pfizer. Yeah, I think that there, there are Definite advantages to companies, large companies the size of Pfizer, for instance, or Merck, where I worked for a while as well, that, that, that bring, as you said, there is specialization and, and it does allow for company that size to have experts within the company who really can dive deep into a very narrow area and, and become really world experts so that they become a, a great resource to the other people working in the company. If I had a question about a, a specific toxicology issue or a, even coming to a, a certain chemical bond and how to address that, I could find people in Pfizer who made part of their career learning about that question. Uh, so that was a, a great resource to be able to just pick up a phone or send, a, send an email and get an answer quite readily. You know, uh, the other advantage that large companies that size have is that they can take on truly large, globally affecting diseases. And, and, and of course, the, the COVID-19 uh, efforts address that. But even trying to address questions like how to treat Alzheimer's disease or heart failure or diabetes, obesity, some of the problems that are, are the, the leading causes and affect millions and millions of people around the world, to, to be able to study those in clinical trials and even develop medicines from the laboratory that can address those problems really require deep pockets and a great deal of people and expertise to work on. And that's what companies the size of Pfizer can do. 
And, and obviously, we saw it happen most recently, as I mentioned. Absolutely. And even just in particular, the, the BioNTech collaboration and maybe that dichotomy. And it's a good segue when we think about the continued journey that you continue to pursue post-Pfizer in uh, joining Moderna. And Moderna's been in the news a lot lately. And as you've just mentioned, your, your wife is part of the clinical development team there, too. Thanks for all of the work that you and your uh, wife have done to help advance on the uh, COVID vaccination process. Um, but I'm curious to see, and maybe just one other note on the large company, small company interaction and synergy, as you point out, the business model of biotech for our audience benefit is oftentimes, you know, to for the biotech company to take on some of that early scientific risk, develop the technology, but then to really get to market, you need the strength and scale of larger companies like like Pfizer. And again, back to that kind of the BioNTech collaboration in many respects, it exemplifies what oftentimes happens going from early idea and into the market. But if we just focus a bit on your experience at Moderna, just some attributes about when you joined the company. I, I think it probably was, you know, kind of before the company went public and, and predated the, you know, the, the current vaccine. But I just wonder, what was it like there? And, you know, what was your experience there? And especially as you went from a large company to a small emerging company like Moderna. Yeah, and and. and Part of how I ended up at Moderna was, was also based on my experience in Pfizer because that's where I first got interested in using RNA as a medicine and, and realizing that there, there is a way to work with messenger RNA as a treatment, whether it's the way that Moderna does it by directly injecting messenger RNA into the body or by the way that other companies such as Stoke and, and others, which we can get to, are do it by manipulating, splicing, or the, the stability of the RNA. But what it was was a, a realization that there was this whole area of the cell that was not being utilized fully. So we had a small molecule drugs and we have monoclonal antibodies um, and then gene therapy was starting to take off, which is a, which is a DNA-based approach. But the mRNA and the, the RNA approach in general uh, was was still quite in its infancy, but definitely had potential. And and I saw that first when I was at advisor, and then definitely saw that at Moderna that use, utilizing mRNA as a medicine had great potential that could go across multiple different therapeutic areas and diseases. Now, I, I did realize relatively early on that this had a great potential for a vaccine. And, and that's how I got my wife to join up into the company was to convince her that, that as a platform, Moderna had great potential for vaccines. And, and she happened to be studying vaccines and, and running clinical trials and vaccines before that. So that's how she got attracted to Moderna and ended up there. That's amazing. I didn't, I didn't understand. I didn't know that background. That's really cool, man. That <laughs> sends a chill down my spine. That's very inspiring. And uh, it's, it's just interesting to see how, you know, the right people are brought to bear at the right time and can, like you said, and as your goal has been, impact, you know, large groups of, of people. Yeah. And, and I think to your point, it, being ready to take on a challenge. And that, that's what Moderna set themselves up to do, was be, be ready for making vaccines and, and have the technology ready so that when this need came, and of course, nobody really saw this need, but, 
but Moderna was in a position to meet that challenge, and especially coming up with the, the ability to manufacture at these huge scales the vaccine was something that took a tremendous amount of brain power and tremendous amount of collaboration among many, many people. But that's part of what was the, the, the mantra at, at Moderna was to be prepared, be ready, and, and be willing to take on these these very challenging tasks. You know, it's amazing. I just had a quick flashback of thinking about, you know, when the news first broke that the clinical trials were yielding good results, you know, with regards to uh, COVID-19. The, then the big question switched, of course, to, oh, well, that's great, but, you know, how are we going to manufacture this, you know, um, at scale to support huge populations? To me, that's one of the most profound elements of what came out of this uh, amazing accomplishment. I mean, not to diminish in any way the science that, that goes into, you know, the efficacious and safe treatment that is represented by the vaccine itself. I mean, equal uh, Im- importance, obviously, but the ability to scale it and uh, the preparation and, and the realization that you could go from this discovery. I just remember there was a lot of skepticism, myself included, that that's great, but you know, how are we going to get it in patients' arms you know, in a meaningful time frame to curb the pandemic? Yeah, I think everybody was amazed. And as, as I said, nobody expected this. And so it took a tremendous amount of willingness to put in many, many hours, but also work together between different groups, the NIH working with Moderna, just as uh, as Moderna was working with clinical investigators all over the world. Uh, all of that came together, and, and that that is what, what is exemplified when everyone can focus on one task and really come together. And that's what I found is, is quite attractive about working at small companies. The small company, when, when there's maybe one program or two programs or so that are the focus of the company, everybody in the company is working together, unified, to try to move that program forward. And it allows smaller companies to be more productive and to move faster and to be much more flexible. That's a big advantage that small companies have over larger companies. So Moderna was able to do it because they they basically got the whole world working on the same thing. But uh, small companies can do it by getting an entire set of employees in the company to work together, collaborate, and focus on one goal. Yeah, hearts and minds driven, mission-based, and, and really driving and really against against all odds. And that, that's an amazing, you know, part of your story. But then, you know, if that wasn't enough, now, you know, you kind of left there and started in pretty close proximity to each other as, as, as I think about it. Two companies, you started Verve and then you became the chief medical officer at, at Stoke Therapeutics. Can you tell us a, a little bit about how that unfolded? Well, I'll tell you a little bit about Stoke Therapeutics, which is a company that was founded based on work that came out of Cold Spring Harbor, Adrian Craner, who also helped to discover and develop Spinraza, which is a medicine that Biogen has for children with SMA and has really been life-changing for those patients. So Stoke has a technology that uses a small piece of RNA to increase messenger RNA levels inside the cell. So this is really a way of increasing particular factors in protein when they are deficient or need to be increased inside a cell. 
uh, our technology can do that. And it's a, a very challenging thing to do. Moderna tries to do it by taking messenger RNA from outside the body and putting it into the cell, which is not easy to do. We take it by targeting the message that's already there, and the message is what the cell uses to make the protein itself. And we increase the amount of that message so that we can make more protein. And it can be used in a variety of different tissues. We're working on it for diseases of the brain right now. Uh, our lead program is for disease called Dravet syndrome. And it is a severe form of epilepsy and developmental delay where children who have this have only half the amount of a sodium channel present in the nerves of the cell. And when those are present at too low a level, the nerves can't talk to each other. And when the nerves can't talk to each other, they predispose people to have seizures. They predispose them to not being able to think as well as normally and to have a variety of other problems. So what our technology can do is boost up the level of that sodium channel back up to normal. When, when I first learned about this approach, it was because these, these diseases where they're called diseases of haploinsufficiency or autosomal dominant diseases, these, these were diseases that were not being well addressed by biopharma in general because they were challenging, but they were also very straightforward because we understand the biology very well of what's going on. We know exactly what the, the genetic problem is. We know exactly how much we need to change things in the cell in order to help make the cell function better. So this, this was something that I, I saw was, was definitely a need, and here was a, a very elegant solution to that. That's really what attracted me to what was going on at Stoke. Well, and would you say, I would imagine, given that specialized patient population that you're able to, kind of, um, have you been able to kind of carry forward that early biogen experience around putting the patient first, and in this particular case too, such a such a rare disease and and an important challenge to solve, and using new tools, you know, understanding at the genetic level, and then new delivery techniques using this novel approach, have, have you been able to kind of carry that that same philosophy forward at Stoke? Well, very much so, yeah. We, we are very close partners with the patient advocacy groups, in this case, the Dravet Syndrome Foundation in the United States and Dravet Europe, uh, where we work very closely with uh, the, the families. And, and they are really our advisors. We take to them our protocols and ask them to give us advice on how to make the protocols work better for our clinical trials. We, as I mentioned before, we, we ask, what, what is it about this particular disease that troubles you the most or troubles your child the most? And that's what we're trying to address. And that's why, actually, it's, it's not so much, in many cases, the seizures in this case. It's actually some of the other problems, like the, the difficulty talking or the difficulty walking uh, or, or the difficulty communicating normally. That, those are all things that, that really are having the biggest impact on day-to-day -day functioning. And, and so those, that's why we want to make sure that we're addressing those issues and, and measuring them when we, when we test our medicine. So yeah, the, the, the families, the, the, the patients themselves are completely the focus of what we're working on. Yeah, that's excellent. Today's episode was brought to you by World Business Chicago. Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. 
from Chicago's global universities and research institutions to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting edge lab and office space. Chicago has the fuel for your company's success. There's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. That's process. And then I guess just switching gears a little bit and just on this parallel track, how are you able to kind of balance, you know, the immersion that you are engaged in at Stoke with a kind of the early founding of, of Verve and how has that played out as well? Yeah, there I was quite fortunate to, it, it's something that is part of being this ecosphere here in, in Boston, which is quite unique. You know, it, it does happen to some degree in San Francisco, a little bit in Chicago and a few other places, but but Boston really facilitates bringing people from with different skills together to build something unique. And in this case, uh, it happened that one of my mentors from Biogen, Bert Edelman, and Seth Kathirisan from, from Mass General, and Tony Filipakis from Brigham and the Broad, and, and several others, we all just happened to get together at the right time and realize the value of, of what this new technology, this gene editing, genome editing technology can do. And so we just started sitting every Friday morning over coffee. We would sit for an hour. And that, over the course of a year, became the nidus for a company. And I um, love that. I love that story. So it, That's pretty cool. It's like a little bit of a jazz band going for, for a while. Yeah, exactly. We were, we, were, we were very much starting to make music <laughs> together, and, and it took yeah. a while for all the chords and the, and the people to figure out what's their role and how can we work off of each other's strengths. But then that built itself into a company. We were lucky to get funding from Google Ventures and from Fidelity and from Arch. And, and so everything just happened to come together. But, but definitely having the, the, the right people, having the right place to get everything together, and, and of course, having the, the idea, the mission for what we wanted to accomplish there at Verve was was what brought it all about. And, and you know, the, the, the idea is to really try to prevent cardiovascular disease in, in millions of people around the world. That effort, that endeavor is slowly but surely coming along. And, and now Verve went from having very early data in test tubes to now being able to show results that are very encouraging in, in non-human primates and planning to go into the clinic. Well, kudos and best of luck on the next phase there. I got to be honest with you. I mean, uh, certainly, you know, we kind of share that common North Star. I mean, my what, what keeps bringing me back is, you know, the ultimate aim is ultimately to try to help affect a patient, you know, try to uh, move the needle in that regard. And, you know, it's a long journey. And as you know, the ball doesn't always bounce in your favor. So resilience is an important part of always keeping that North Star in front of you. But I must say that the other thing that is always so interesting to me are the people and the characters and the stories and just that, you know, just what you just shared there, you know, just kind of riffing for an hour every every Friday with these uh, with these people that are, you know, rock stars in their, in their own right. And that to me is also just really inspiring. It's just the people, what drives them, the sto- their own stories, and they're all so different. And um, that is, is an amazing part to me of what makes biotech biotech. I'm certainly sure it's the same in other industries, but I don't know, just the, you know, and, and literally often, you know, we, we Think about, you know, my partner at Pixis, Tom Gajewski. He literally is a rock star. You know, he, not only is he good at doing 
cancer immunology, but you know he plays lead guitar in the in the checkpoints with uh, with Jim Allison, the Nobel laureate. So that's the kind of people. It's really interesting, and maybe that that sets up you know the next part of this uh, conversation, and that is you know the the role of founders. Um, you know yourself being one, but but others like Phil Sharp at Biogen and Bob Langer at Moderna. Um, what 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 uh, can you say about? And maybe you've already kind of set the stage for that with regards to how it happens in Boston. But just the outsized role that that founders play, uh, or not, in uh, getting you know companies off the ground in the biotech space. Well, it's it's certainly evolving, and I think part of that is an attitudinal change that academic institutions are having with time. It's it's happening at University of Chicago as well, but but certainly MIT. Is, is a shining example of a university that realizes that it's not a bad thing for companies to be formed coming out of the, the knowledge and expertise in the university. It, it used to be that it, it was quite frowned upon to think about the commercial aspect of your research. If you were not just thinking about something purely for the academic part of this, and it, it became something with, with time that became more acceptable, um, and even for myself to, to pursue a non-traditional career. Um, that's something that uh, has become also much more accepted within academia. So these non-traditional routes, these non-straightforward academic approaches uh, really have lately become much more uh, of a almost desirable. You know, it, it used to be that academics pointed to the books or the chapters that they wrote, but now they're pointing to the companies that they started. And 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 starting a company has become a badge of honor and something that that many academics are striving for because we we do realize that in, in many ways companies have the resources the means to be able to bring medicines to patients that couldn't be achieved in academia. And that's part of why I, I made the switch as well. I realized if I was going to pursue medicines for Alzheimer's disease or for heart failure or even for genetic forms of epilepsy, other diseases, it takes a huge amount of, of resources in terms of funding to support the clinical trials, in terms of rigor to have all of the framework in place to follow all the regulatory rules and the requirements for running clinical trials. All of that requires quite a bit of infrastructure that just is not possible in academia. And so rather than letting a good idea really die on the vine, sometimes in academia where something is discovered but then doesn't, there isn't that next step that, that takes it to where it could be where the potential of where it could actually help in terms of human biology and medicine, the biopharma industry is able to do that. And so there is a recognition now more and more so that, that this is a positive, it's a good thing to have that happen. And, and I think that's why founders are becoming more, more common. Academic founders are feeling more comfortable making this move and feeling in many cases encouraged by their institutions to do it. Definitely. And I'm watching that occur and unfold before my eyes. You and I have had the chance to collaborate specifically at the University of Chicago, where at the Polsky Center, in so many ways, we were trying to rewrite the rules and, and set the stage so that we would make it very easy for faculty that wanted to start a business 
that they could pursue that opportunity, that a postdoc wouldn't need to stay in academia, that a PhD student could populate, you know, the beginnings of, of some of these companies and, and create the right infrastructure and philosophy and culture to be able to, to make that happen. And um, recognizing also that many of those faculty are not only the prolific at perhaps starting a company where they want to have impact, they want to go beyond their publishing in science and nature, but they're also very prolific at publishing at the same time. And, and so this next generation you know, of, of faculty beyond basic science is now becoming more applied, more translational. It seems like that's also a reaction to government funding continuing to kind of come down in nature. And so this a, a real push to engage with outside industry and the notion of translations becoming more important. And certainly the University of Chicago was not alone in this endeavor. So a lot more of the faculty, you know, phenotype that you'd find at Stanford and MIT, in so many ways, institutions outside of those ecosystems have worked over the course of the next uh, last 10 years to attract those faculty to those ecosystems. And, and that's what's been fun to watch about Chicago is now that's finally taking root. And um, then it's building in the other pieces of the ecosystem around them, the, the labs, the money and the community and the larger companies and so on and so forth. But, you know, you've been a part of that, you know, in, in building not only the Boston ecosystem, but even here um, um, in Chicago through your role um, at the University of Chicago. Just any observations around whether that whether I, I have my finger on the pulse correctly that you know this the, the, in many ways the the ecosystem will likely distribute over time you know um, continue to churn and develop and grow in Boston and San Francisco they're such special places but maybe a spillover into these other ecosystems beginning to occur given the funding environment you know record levels of money being raised into dedicated life sciences funds is fueling a lot of needs to invest in places that, you know, are maybe less conventional in nature. And then a lot of these ecosystems have attracted, you know, these um, high potential faculty. Any thoughts around that thesis? Yeah, I think you're spot on in that. I would call it a learning process that has to be really fostered by the institutions to begin with. And you mentioned University of Chicago, so I'll put in a plug for a program called My Choice there, which is really recognizing the fact that not, not every graduate student, not every medical student is going to end up in, a, in an academic setting. And these non-traditional careers are a useful and really productive way to use one's training. So, so that My Choice program, and it, it's replicated in, in other universities elsewhere, is first just educating trainees as to what are their options. Because obviously somebody who's in a lab sees just the lab head and that's where, where their mentorship and, and examples come from. What we need to do is provide examples for other ways that someone can use everything that they've trained and their, and their degree and, and how they can put it to uses other than what's been traditionally done in the past. So I think that you, you are seeing that happen now in, in smaller universities and, and, and certainly there are great discoveries coming out of small universities and being brought into companies that maybe start small and get discovered and then uh, get incorporated sometimes into larger companies or uh, manage to bring in funding themselves to, to grow. But 
there, there is a recognition that we don't have to just look at, at the Harvards and the Stanfords for good ideas, that there are great ideas brewing in, in many different places, and, and uh, we, we have to go out and, and scout them and find them. Yeah, no, and just back to your point, cr- creating an environment that celebrates that, and again, kind of a transition from a prior state or, or disposition to kind of frown upon commercialization, almost holding it up as a scholarly activity on an, in and of itself because of the impact that you know those discoveries can, can have. So I think it's an exciting transitional time that we're in the midst of right now. And I think, um, of course, you know, COVID has brought a lot of visibility to the biotech industry, which in turn has brought a lot of attention by others that maybe weren't looking at that industry and its impact that make it also an exciting time for for scaling, you know, within this uh, so-called biocentury. Just uh, as we begin to wrap up the conversation, you know, one of the things that I'm really eager to try to help move the needle on is just the the notion that as as biotech companies grow and succeed and as these new modalities, cell therapy, gene therapy, mRNA, you know, gene editing, all of these new sciences are beginning to drive better outcomes for patients and have promised to continue to do so and maybe even at a faster rate in the future. But one of the inhibiting factors I see for being able to really scale across multiple different types of diseases will be manufacturing. And talent is uh, continuing to be a very difficult thing to attract. And, and so, therefore, growing the talent pool is going to be incredibly you know, important as we move forward. And in that respect, any thoughts you have around how we encourage more people to be excited about the pathway into biotechnology those perhaps that you know wouldn't identify ordinarily with this perspective path, but you know getting engaged, I think it's imperative for our industry to grow and scale to welcome you know diverse sets of talent across every element of the definition of diversity. But any thoughts there or aspirations? Yeah, I think you're you're exactly correct there. When you talk to almost every biopharma executive right now, ask them what their biggest concern is or their biggest headache. Talent, finding talent and keeping talent, retaining talent, it's, it's by far the largest, double the rate of, of any other concern on their list. So we, we'd have to be able to, to develop the, the talent pool across the country here. And, and much of that comes from getting young children interested in science. Um, as you said, learning about COVID has helped. I'm, I sit on the Board of Advisors for the Museum of Science. And that, that's certainly one way that, that I see that we can encourage is to, is to have places where children can learn about science, can, can see examples that inspire them. Uh, we have to really begin that early. We, we, can't, we can't wait until we're trying to interest somebody when they're in college or in graduate school, it has to start from the very, very beginning. They have to have, they have to have mentors. They have to have heroes. They have to have examples, and they have to have the means to learn about this and and be able to discover things that fascinate them and that foster that fascination. Well, I mean, and you know, at the start of this conversation, that was in many ways uh, your dad and your experience that set you, you know, on your course and your arc 
was the gasp, you know, at the, of the woman who could see. And it's just that exposure. Can we expose more people to the, to the gasp, if you will, uh, in their own way that, that sets them on that, on that journey. So yeah, no, I, I really agree. And we're aligned on, on the thinking there and, and certainly see it as a, as a constraint. So we're going to keep, you know, working hard, you know, amongst us to find ways to uh, accelerate the, the talent pool and its diversity. Um, as we, Wind down here, just, I guess, two last questions. One, what gets you excited about the future? Any key areas of bioscience you think are going to have, you know, outperform on, you know, trans- transformation or, or certain disease areas you think are going to get more attention? And then I'll ask my last question after that. Well, certainly in the near term, RNA is, is very promising, is really hot. There, there are more and more companies and more and more therapies, technologies that are using manipulation of RNA to, to attain goals that were unable to be achieved before by other medicines. So I, I see that as having great promise. And then also gene editing and being able to ultimately address many of the genetic diseases that we have. Um, and almost all diseases are have genetic components to them. So this, this is going to be a way to uh, address many diseases. The, the, the challenges there are going to be doing it safely and delivering it to the right parts of the body. But when we, when we have those challenges met, and, and many of them in many ways are already, uh, we are going to have the, the genome editing technology be something that really can change quite a bit of medicine in the future. And then, you know, my last last question is just as we look, you know, to the future and the talent that will um, fuel the science and, and create the impact that we're describing here, you know, from um, your early journey on the south side of Chicago to, you know, your current leadership position in the biotech industry, do you have anything that, you know, you think um, would be an inspirational statement to the next generation of life sciences talent as they begin their journey? Well, I can only encourage them to to find something that that uh, is is passion that they're passionate about. I think people will frequently will come across something and, and it fascinates them, just as I was fascinated. And you have to go with that feeling. You have to pursue that feeling, and and follow the one's passions. It it makes all of the the little things that that uh, come, come along the way, all the little bumps become smoothed out and much easier to tolerate when you're doing something that you love. Uh, and uh, my, my hope is that everybody can find that passion and that love for their work when they pursue a career. That's very well said. And uh, I continue to be inspired by you and your leadership and learning from you. And I feel lucky to count you as a a friend and uh, collaborator. Um, Also, again, really excited to see what happens next at Stoke and Verve. And again, please extend our our thanks to your wife uh, and you uh, also for contributions uh, at Moderna and, and all the great things you're doing to impact thousands of lives uh, with, with patients that have uh, disease. Thanks so much, Barry. Thanks, John. This is great. Uh, thanks for reaching out and thanks for your friendship. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guest today and were inspired the way I was. 
Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye.